Okay, good evening, everyone, and thank you very much for coming to uh, this uh, uh, interesting book launch. Uh, my name is Atimad uh, Mohanna. I'm a research fellow uh, at the Middle East Center researching gender and youth radicalization in the MENA region. Uh, it is actually an honor for me to uh, chair uh, John uh, Chalcraft's uh, book launch uh, this evening. Uh, his book, Popular Politics in, in the Making of the Modern Middle East. It looks really good, uh, our book. Um, is, is a unique uh, addition to multidisciplinary literatures on the Middle East. I think the crowd in the room also show uh, is a good sign that uh, we are all interested to listen to uh, John uh, Chalcraft's uh, presentation of, of his book. So uh, John will speak for 45 minutes, and we will have another 45 minutes for uh, questions and answers. And um, his book will be is available outside for anyone who wants to buy it after uh, the uh, the event. Um, so, before I introducing John uh, Chalcraft, uh, please uh, you shut off your mobiles in order to avoid any uh, disturbance. And if anyone interested to tweet this event, as usual, you can find you can uh, use hashtag #LSEChalcraft. So, for those who do not know uh, Joan, Joan uh, Chalcraft is uh, uh, an associate professor in the history uh, and politics of empire and imperialism in uh, the LSE governance uh, department of government. Uh, he works on the history and politics of the modern Middle East with special uh, reference to Egypt, Syria, and Lebanon. Uh, he also works on protest uh, movements, migration, labor history, craft and guilds, uh, transnationalism, contentious politics, uh, hegemony, and history from below. Um, uh, Charlecraft had uh, his MA in history from uh, Gonville and uh, Keyes College, Cambridge, in 1992. He then did postgraduate work at Harvard, Oxford, and New York University. He received his uh, PhD with distinction in the modern history of the Middle East in January 2001 from uh, a New York University. Uh, he held a research fellowship at Keyes College, 1999-2000, uh, and was a lecturer in modern Middle Eastern history in Department of Islamic and Mo Middle Eastern Studies at Edinburgh uh, University in uh, the period 2000-2005. Um, uh, John uh, Chalcroft has a, a long list of publications. I counted them. He has 10 articles in peer-reviewed uh, international journals, uh, 13 book chapters. Is it true? Um, I, I, could be. I just uh, two monographs and uh, three books beside the fourth one, which is the subject of this uh, event. His uh, books include, in 2009, 
He published The Invisible uh, Cage, Syrian Migrants, Workers in Lebanon uh, by um, uh, Stanford uh, University Press. He co-edited a book with um, uh, Yassin uh, Nourani uh, in 2007 uh, entitled Counter Hegemony in the Colony and Post-Colony by Balgrave uh, Macmillan. Um, his um, the, oh, the first book in, published in 2004, uh, The Striking Copies of Cairo and Other Stories, Crafts and Girls in Egypt in the period 1863 to 1914, published by uh, State University of New York Press. Uh, so now we are so pleased to listen to your uh, presentation. Uh, you have 45 uh, minutes. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, it's good. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Atamed, for that, that nice introduction. I uh, start to feel old, but uh, I don't feel old. In fact, I'm excited <laughs> to be here uh, because this book is quite recently published, and, and it's a pleasure to uh, launch it uh, on home ground, as it were. And thanks to the Middle East Centre for hosting this, especially Sandra Smear for making the arrangements, and for to uh, Atamed and for sharing. And uh, uh, good to see you. Uh, nice to see some familiar faces in the in the audience as well. So I'm just here to present the book. I have 45 minutes. Uh, I'll try and tell you something about what's in it and the key themes that it explores. It's a very wide-ranging and in-depth history of protest in the Middle East and North Africa since the 18th century. It takes up a great variety of contentious collective action. That includes expressions of dissent, petitioning, liberty against the law, socio-political movements, uprisings, and revolutions. You'll find in the book Islamist movements, nationalist movements, labor, women's, liberal, and democratic movements, and movements that rely principally on armed struggle or on institutional disruption or persuasion. At the centre of it are the dynamics of transgressive mobilisation. That's collective action that breaks the rules of existing politics, challenges forms of exclusion, brings new entrants into the political field and forges new collective actors and solidarities. The book has four parts, mostly arranged chronologically, going back to the late 18th century, and in it are many case studies built around episodes of contention. It draws on a very wide range of secondary literature in French, English, and Arabic, and as well as primary sources and archives, and there's a special emphasis there on the memoirs, autobiographies, and treatises of activists themselves. It's written against uh, a certain body of neo-orientalist and security studies writing that tends to objectify protest and see it in terms of backwardness or recalcitrance, above all because especially neo-orientalism relies on culturally essentialist and exceptionalist uh, stereotypes about Arabs and Muslims. It's also written against top-down accounts of politics and, their, and, and power institutional views and their lack of attention to the importance of consent and resistance. But it stands on the shoulders of historical sociology while taking issue with its socioeconomic determinism and modernist telos and it draws much from post-colonialism's deconstruction of modernist meta-narrative and its attention to culture, 
while writing strongly against post-colonialism's erasure of subaltern voice and struggles, its closed hermeneutic circle, and its treatment of discourse as a kind of overwhelming mechanism of social control and its ultimate political disengagement. The book instead aims at a rich political history from below. So that means against species of structural determinism and socioeconomic determinism and top-down views, it aims to do justice to political agency, i.e. to organised, conscious, political labour action and interaction. And it tries to locate these dynamics in the making and unmaking of the region's political dispensations, arguing that major political transformations cannot be understood without a grasp of protest. So, I'll spend 20 minutes or so saying what's in the book and its main historical arguments, and then I'll try to draw out some of the the key themes. In part one, it goes from 1798 to 1914. It's entitled Millenarianism, Renewal, Justice, Rights and Reform. And it, it has, the cases include the uprising against the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt in 1798, decades of struggle against French colonization in Algeria. There are millenarian uprisings in Egypt from the 1810s to the 1860s. There's uh, Abdul Qadir al Jazeera's Islamic revival and state building efforts in Algeria. There are commoner uprisings against taxation in the Mushrik, the Arab East, including the remarkable popular Republican movement of Tanius Shaheen on Mount Lebanon in 1858 to 1860. Uh, in regards to Morocco, it takes up tribes, Sufis, pretenders and millenarians in the late 19th and early 20th century. There's uh, a study of the Mahdiya, the millenarian, heterodox millenarian movement in Sudan in the 1880s. Uh, there are strikes again before unions, parties, and socialism. Takes up the Arabi movement in Egypt, 1881 to 2, and the constitutional movement in Istanbul in 1908. And there are studies of workers and peasants in Egypt around the turn of the century. The main explanatory context for the long 19th century is posited in the book as not direct colonial rule or colonialism and not world economic integration, but the transformation and self-strengthening of the three main states of the region under pressure from European power. And the different sort of vectors of extraction, regulation, conscription, centralization uh, that this self-strengthening effort set in motion, and also the weakness, corruption, and indebtedness of those states, particularly uh, Morocco and Iran during this period. During this period, revolutionary movements sought to replace the state with a new kind of political community. But they did so not under nationalist banners, but under the banners of Islamic revival, whether in Sufi or heterodox millenarian colours. More reformist types of movements sought to win concessions from the state or to carve out spheres of autonomy under banners not of labour socialism or liberalism but under powerful living traditions in regard to the Sultan's justice, the notion of rights and just shares and forms of custom, both tribal and urban. 
and you had more elite urban reformists starting from the late 1870s who sought to lodge principles of representation within the state and they mostly lacked mass constituencies before the First World War. Part of the main thrust and the main interest for me of, of the study of the 19th century was that it was not, as it's, I want to argue in the book, it's not as it's often treated, a kind of dress rehearsal for a more fully formed politics later on, as it's often treated. These powerful traditions of popular protest that are partly handed down from the 18th century, they're not half-formed or deviant versions of more complete European models, whether in liberal, socialist, or nationalist forms. They're not backward, pre-political or archaic, but they're built around living and changing and diverse Islamic traditions, Ottoman statecraft and custom. These movements on the more negative side sometimes drew in colonial violence, they sometimes encountered brutal repression, and they could end in sectarian conflict. On the more positive side, they also blunted extraction by the powerful, they secured rights and just shares, they enacted justice against local exploiters, they cut against corruption, they drew on and sometimes entrenched new kinds of state regulation and centralization, they temporarily generated new forms of statehood and political community, and in certain cases they were able, at least temporarily, to lodge new principles of representation in the state. Part two of the book goes from 1914 to 1952. It's entitled Patriotism, Liberalism, Armed Struggle and Ideology. It treats in great detail the rugged armed struggles under the banners of nation and Islam that broke out between 1911 and 1939 in what became Libya and Iraq, Syria, Morocco and in the later part of that period, Palestine. I also look at the mass insurrection in Egypt of 1919, the young Algerians and Meseli al-Hajj, the labor movement in Egypt, nationalist Shia workers and peasants in Iraq, the national bloc in Syria, women's movements in Egypt, the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and a number of other cases. The main explanatory context for this period has less to do with modernization or the development of peripheral capitalism. And it has a much more political cast in this book. It has to do with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the very direct and invasive forms of imperialism that the region encounters, especially after 1911, and then the growing crises of the semi-independent states and their politicians and leaderships as the 1930s and 40s continue. These kinds of political dynamics, they break the existing state framework after 1911 and they impose a different one. They imply uh, invasive new forms of state power, whether in the Rift Mountains of Morocco or the Jebel Druze of Syria and they generate powerful new forms of exclusion, whether in, because of Zionist settler colonialism in Palestine or Italian settler colonialism in Libya. And they, these political dynamics also offered alliances to those movements ready to seize them, as we see, for example, in the, the Arab Revolt, well known as the subject of that film, Lawrence of Arabia, from 1916. The more revolutionary kinds of movements during this period demanded independence, above all under nationalist banners. And those banners blended and joined hands with notions of independence conceived in Islamic terms. 
More reformist kinds of movements increasingly demanded not just the Sultan's justice, which was less relevant over time, but the reform of the whole social system, whether in terms of Islam, socialism, or liberalism. And these were new struggles which drew heavily on older organizational forms, traditions of protest and forms of moral economy, but reformulated them in new terms. So the guilds and the Sufi orders were replaced by these political agencies, by unions and mass societies. The interwar period, the book argues, was not defined by the beginnings of socio-economic contradictions that were later to become more full-blown which is a very common sort of idea. In fact, independence was so much emphasised, not because these were superficial political struggles that lacked socio-economic content, but because political community and its radical transformation really was at stake during these years. Nor were these movements a kind of European borrowing, a modernist graft onto a backward population. Instead, nationalism came to the fore at this time because it was able to hegemonise diverse constituencies living traditions and ideas, including religious and jihad traditions. And the development of new ideological forms drew heavily on reformulated but powerful traditions of protest. The generation of 1919, as it were, a reference to the mass insurrection in Egypt, did not achieve national independence in the Arabic-speaking world. And the transformation of the system on socialist, uh, Islamic or liberal lines was not achieved. And in many cases, uprisings were brutally crushed. That's on the negative side. On the more positive side, these movements played an important role in making national independence the key stake in the relationships with European powers. They made national aspirations hegemonic in the social formation as a whole. They changed the terms of colonial rule from direct to indirect in Egypt, Iraq, and Syria. And they pushed forward state centralization in the Rif Mountains of Morocco, and they stitched at tribes into state formation in Iraq and Jordan. They also made social reform, whether in regards to women or labor relations, central issues. And they developed new vehicles of mass organization, syndicates, unions, the Muslim Brotherhood, and so on. And they contributed over time in a major way to the unsustainability of the semi-colonial order. Part three of the book takes up the period 1952 to 1976. It deals with national independence, guerrilla war, and social revolution. It begins with Nasser's revolutionary coup in Egypt in 1952 and it looks at similar coups in Iraq, North Yemen and Libya and attempted coups in Saudi Arabia. It looks also at the armed struggles in Algeria, South Yemen and among Palestinians from 1954 to the 1970s. It looks at the rise of Ba'athism in Syria, strikes and protests in various parts of the Arabian Peninsula and also leftist movements in Lebanon until 1976. For this part of the book, the main explanatory context has less to do with the development of statist capitalism and it's certainly not about the strains of modernization that drove otherwise backward populations into the arms of hostile ideologies like communism. Instead, the book sees the key explanatory context as the crisis of the colonially controlled, partially liberal political order that's bequeathed by the interwar years. 
nationalist independence and social reform were burning issues, but the generation of 1919 had not delivered, as it were, and this was a galvanizing crisis that stirred mass mobilization. Movements aimed to bring about national independence, especially those of the more revolutionary kind, and they also aimed to drive through social and economic reform and the redistribution of wealth in a way that is much more marked than in the earlier period. Well, a, a striking thing about the movements of this period is that they really look to the agencies of the state especially a new and reformulated state, even where that state didn't really exist, as in Algeria, for example, especially you know, an Algerian Muslim state. It hadn't existed since 1830, and before 1830, uh, you know, it was a very uh, thin, decentralized uh, affair, uh, I mean, as Hugh Roberts has argued. But they looked to the state. The state would be the agent of change. The state would bring about national independence. The state would bring about social and economic reform. The period witnessed dramatic forms of mobilization, but it also had a kind of a vanguardism which operated to displace mass mobilization. So where you had fronts, committees, and cells were at work, which I argue acted as much to replace the mass societies, political parties, or, or independent union movements, and to displace them. So in this context, you can't speak of the rise and rise of mass national politics, which is a common trope when people write about the history of Britain. So on Tilly, I mean, Tilly's review of the, the literature on that. And, and in, in fact, mass national politics could be and was curtailed by the new authoritarians of the region by the 1970s. The book, because I'm, in, because I'm being interested in, in protests and popular movements, uh, argues that vanguardism and statism had some elective affinities with authoritarian rule. And thus, these movements must bear some responsibility for the authoritarianism that developed in the state in the 1950s and 60s in the region. On the more positive side, their achievements in bringing about national independence and driving through and contributing to real social and economic redistribution can hardly be contested. Part four of the book takes up the period from 1977 to 2011. It's entitled Islamism, Revolution, Uprisings and Liberalism. It begins with the uprising in Egypt in 1977. It's the first time in the post-independence Arab world that you have a, a sort of a mass uprising against a domestic regime that's purporting, you know, still upholding the banners of, of nationalism and, and statism. Uh, and there's also a period of strike action and leftist protest in Egypt in the 1970s up until the 80s. I look at Shiism in Iraq from pamphlets to Mujahideen, look at the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria from 1963 to 82, and in Egypt, as well as Sunni Jihad uh, in Egypt. Uh, I look at the Iranian Revolution, then at Lebanon and Hezbollah, then at Salafi Wahhabism and taking on the far enemy, and also the reform movement in Iran from the 1990s, the independence intifada in Lebanon, 2005, the one that results in the withdrawal of the, the Syrian forces, the return of liberal and labor protest in Egypt in the 2000s, the BDS movement for Palestinian rights, and the Arab uprisings of 2011, and with some attention to the fate of the liberals in Egypt. 
For part four of the book, the main explanatory context has less to do with a specific trajectory of globalization or of neoliberal capitalist development, but instead with the increasing incapacity of the formerly revolutionary republics to win the consent of their populations, that's on the one side, and on the other, attempts by states such as Saudi Arabia to legitimate themselves on revamped Salafi Wahhabi lines. So these kinds of political dynamics meant that authorities rolled back on socioeconomic rights, they drew back from pan-Arabism and third-worldism, they often failed to bring either democracy or prosperity, especially outside of the uh, hydrocarbon-rich societies, they provoked many by violence, torture and police humiliation, and the sponsorship of Salafi Wahhabism, which is an absolutist and sectarian form of Islam, the sponsorship by the Saudi royal house, in order to justify its absolutist rule with its origins uh, in the Arab Cold War of the 1960s when the Saudis were thinking uh, we have to build uh, our legitimacy against the forces of pan-Arabism and and Nasserism, etc. It ended up promoting a form of Islam or Islamism that was previously radically rejected in almost all parts of the region before the 1970s, from the 1740s to the 1970s. Meanwhile, invasion and occupation from without starts to be a feature of this period, uh, unlike the previous period, but more like uh, periods before that, including ongoing Israeli settler colonization and the machinations of other external powers from the United States to Russia, which have all generated major dissenting constituencies. So amid these political dynamics... Some movements, some especially of the more revolutionary kind, attempted to replace the secular with an Islamic state, whether in Shia, Sunni modernist, or Salafi Wahhabi colours. Or they sought to throw off occupation under banners both Islamic and secular nationalist. In one case, that of the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, the BDS movement, aim is taken at settler colonialism by a translocal, radically democratic and post-nationalist project, or movements such as Al-Qaeda at the other end of the spectrum sought to bring down the far enemy, i.e. the United States. 2011 involved mass uprisings that sought to bring down corrupted regimes on the basis of universal forms of popular sovereignty, bread, dignity and freedom. Other more reformist movements aimed to reform state and society on Islamic and pious lines or to assert, restore and recover social and economic rights against heavy threats or to push for the rights of women in different ways, or to push back against dictatorship, bringing liberal, representative and democratic principles and human rights norms to bear in the state. On the more uh, glass-half-empty view, these movements have contributed directly and indirectly to sectarian conflict in Iraq and Syria, as well as in Algeria in the 1990s. They've sometimes been brutally repressed at great cost. They've not halted settler colonization in Israel-Palestine. In many cases, they've been unable to prevent the growth and growth of the security state. They've contributed sometimes to revolutions that have devoured their children. And the new religious politics has brought about new forms of social conservatism with all the implications that has for restrictions on sexual, gender and women's freedoms. 
On the more positive side, Hezbollah did succeed in terminating Israel's long occupation of South Lebanon in 2000. Other movements from Bahrain to Egypt have kept alive the idea that human rights, representative institutions and democratic forms should be promoted in the face of dictatorship, corruption and monarchy. Other movements have contributed to the making of Islamic forms of democracy, both in theory and practice. And we've seen in Tunisia, after 2011, positive liberal democratic outcomes in the wake of mass uprisings and tenacious organized contention, outcomes threatened by sectarianism in Salafi colouring. Others have protected, other movements have protected public sector and industrial workers against deteriorating pay and conditions and kept the social question alive in an age of neoliberalism. In the Arab world in the present, the idea of the Islamic State has not been able to become hegemonic in the social formation as a whole, either because it's been conceived too narrowly or because there are broad constituencies that are profoundly opposed to it. But in this difficult impasse, which drives liberals, Democrats and frightened minorities into the hands of authoritarian rulers and excludes and makes more militant Islamists themselves, this sort of dilemma is central to the contemporary uh, impasses and dilemmas of the region. But it has a great deal to do with contentious mobilization and the popular politics with which, with which this book is centrally concerned. So that's a glimpse of some of the main uh, uh, arguments and uh, the, the historical structure of the book. But I wanted to say a bit more about the themes, uh, the explanatory and interpretive themes that operate within the book. And I said at, at the heart of the book is transgressive mobilization. And it's this phrase that uh, some Palestinians in the late 1980s used when they were speaking to a doctoral researcher, uh, Sonia Nimmer, when she was asking them, you know, uh, kind of doing semi-structured oral history type interviews. And they said, well, back in the 1930s, they said, quote, the people defied the authorities and took matters into their own hands. Unquote. And it was somehow this idea of the seizure from below of doctrinal and political agency, moments where, you know, authorities, whether they like it or not, and they usually don't like it, ordinary people who are excluded from transacted and official politics, at certain moments they seek to engage in political action and sometimes they try to take matters into their own hands. And it's that sort of theme, uh, it, it's transgressive action, is that it breaks the rules of existing politics, it challenges forms of exclusion, it involves new entrants into the political field, and it forges new kinds of collective actors and solidarities. And it's uh, and, and, and part, one of the, the, the important pieces of the book is that I want to show that this is not a, a gift of Europe to the rest of the world. In fact, it has a long pre-modern and early modern history, and we find this history in the Middle East and North Africa. It's uh, uh, this, uh, this kind of transgressive mobilization. It's not a... Uh, so often when we read accounts of protests, they're based on some kind of telos that's associated with capitalist modernity or globalisation. And the latest iteration of that has to do with the role of social media and the internet in bringing about protests. But if you go back and back and back, you find it's... You know, back in... If you look at Juan Cole's excellent study of the Arabi movement of Egypt in the 1880s, it comes about because of the railway and the telegraph and social mobilisation. Well, to be fair... I mean, that, these are very important enabling conditions that, 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 bring, that help to bring about that movement. So I was partly concerned to uh, get outside of this kind of what I see as a, as a, as a modernist uh, telos and, and a form of ultimately of Eurocentric.
militarism. I mean, if we look at transgressive mobilization, you see it spectacularly on display in the Arab uprisings of 2011. You see it in the new mobilization of millions, this sudden demand for the regime to fall, which still nobody knows exactly where it came from, this dramatic extension of slogans of bread, dignity, and freedom, and on and on, the determined occupations of public space, the the pitched battles against police. These are some of the vectors of transgressive mobilization. But it's, it's not something... This isn't just an expression of the latest stage of progressive consciousness. It, it's actually a phenomena that happens uh, on a regular basis. And just to give you a glimpse of this from 1798 in Egypt following the Napoleonic occupation, uh, in Cairo, a well-known cleric came forward, quote, mounted on a steed, unquote, in extraordinary military fashion, leading crowds from the al Hussein quarter. The crowd became huge and full of the poor and those of low status. Quote, ruffians, unquote, and quote, inhabitants of lodgings in the ever-critical language of Al-Jabarti, one of Egypt's foremost uh, clerics and, and chroniclers of the age. He says they gathered in front of the Al-Hussein Mosque, the Al-Azhar Seminary, and the chief judge's home to demand what faith, law, and justice required. A perfumer among them, quote, dressed up in the guise of a cleric with a vest and a waistcloth, came forward calling out to the people, incited them and exclaimed, Muslims, God is most great the clerics have commanded you to kill the infidels make ready stalwarts and strike them everywhere. Al-Jabarti goes on to grumble about an important popular leader called Al-Maghribi who, he says, interfered in things which do not concern him and appeared in town like the Pasha and the Kethuda, Ottoman officials, and the Mamluks who are the military households that, that, uh, that hold the reins of power in Egypt. What is he that he appoints himself without having been appointed by anybody, says Al-Jabarti. It is civil strife, he says, which turns any ignoble bird into a vulture, especially when the rabble riots and the, and the mob and riffraff rises. And, and here's a vivid, if sour, description uh, of the transgressive seizure from below of political and doctrinal agency. Because, of course, I mean, this clarity was mounted on a steed, which is forbidden, because that's something that Mamluks can do. That's why uh, Al-Jabarti says he, he appeared in town like the Pasha and the Fethkuda. And, and then the perfumer, which is just you know a tray, appears dressed up in the guise of a cleric, so he's pretending to be a cleric, but he isn't. So there are these sort of usurpations of political and doctrinal agency that involve the entrance of those excluded from the political field. And, and you get this throughout this history, and, and you know, back all the way to 2011 from 1798. So it's a theme I, I wanted to, to delve into. Transgressive mobilization of this kind, it's exasperating to power holders precisely because it's both new, unexpected, and regularly misunderstood, and because it offers a challenge. Power holders say, where on earth is this coming from? And they often put it down to recalcitrance. I mean, Napoleon in Egypt says, how dare these people resist? How can they be presumptuous? I'm the, 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 the victor of, of Jaina and other battles in Austria. What are they doing resisting? You know, they must be mad. Or uh, which, which you know, is the kind of trope that we hear again and again uh, in the halls of power from you know that moment uh, uh, to this. So. 
So, uh, so then I, what the book does is tries to develop a sort of grid for reading this. Well, if it's not about a, a new stage of, of consciousness or infrastructural development or a socioeconomic pattern that's brought about by some new iteration of capitalist modernity, then what is it? What is it rooted in these seizures of, of doctrinal agency? And the answer the book gives has to do with moments when political consent breaks down and subjects are disincorporated from patterns of consent. And, and the idea is that consent is usually one. Political consent, meaning consent to routinize transacted forms of politics and the distribution of power within the state, it, they're usually won by mechanisms of uh, inclusion or effectiveness or legitimacy or spheres of tolerated autonomy or forms of co-optation. But these kinds of mechanisms can break down. And it especially happens when authorities fail or a derelict in some way, shape or form. And when they break down, it makes dissenting constituencies available for transgressive mobilization. And that's a theme that runs through the book from the, the derelictions of the Mamluks of Egypt of 1798 who failed to uh, defend the country. This is why they're so swingingly criticized by Algebraity, which then gets uh, picked up and, uh, and on and on. But so, or another example, in, more in the present, the major blow to the authority of the Saudi state in 1990 to one, 91 when it you know, asked the Americans to come and defend itself against the uh, threat to the kingdom of uh, Ba'athism and the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. But you see it in the failures of the civilian uh, leaderships, liberals and politicians of the interwar period uh, with the generation of 1948, as it were, uh, losing faith in the generation of 1919. And you have it in the generation of 1967, which following the defeat, crushing defeat of the Arab states at the hands of Israel, you have a whole generation that, 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 that starts to question uh, the patrimonial, the you know, neo-patrimonial authority and so on of the, of the military regimes. Uh, I have a, a, a long excerpt from the memoirs of someone who went to fight for uh, the PLO after 1967, and it's just this, and in his memoir he details this moment when the, the defeat of the Arab states sort of galvanized all this political activity in Lebanon and people are trying to find a solution. Anyway, I won't, I won't go into it, but it's the same kind of idea that it's not that there's a sort of pre-existing socioeconomic infrastructure or set of grievances that gives rise to political action, as in the, the classical model. Instead, there's a moment where the authorities or the political system is seen, it, it fails to continue to win consent, the mechanisms that make that break down, and then you have uh, the, the, the door is open to new kinds of, of, of transgression. And so, uh, uh, but of course, the vectors of transgressive mobilization are, you know, uh, they, they're not just random. There they're, they're are various sorts of uh, uh, factors that play a role in shaping them. And the book looks in detail at three. Uh, one is intellectual labor. Another is what I call piracy, which has to do with the uh, translocal appropriation of ideas, especially contentious ideas for collective action. And the last one is normative commitment. And I think, what have I, have I spoken for about 30 minutes? Uh, you still have another seven okay. to ten minutes, but okay. it's, so it's good if you finish about, as earlier as possible. Give more time for <laughs> <Yes>. questions. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, 
But to say something about intellectual labor, because it's often it gets you know, abstracted into uh, political, you know, intellectual history, but it, it plays this vital role in, in, in this book in shaping you know, the vectors of, of transgressive action. It can serve as a basis for identities and principles and goals of a movement. It can even furnish uh, the movement strategies, tactics, and modes of organization. And that's been the case. It's, again, it's not something new. It's been the case uh, uh, from the Sufi-inflected Islamic revivalism of Abdul Qadir al-Jazeri in Algeria in the 1830s through the millenarianism of Mahdi of Sudan and, and then through to politicized Shiism or radical democracy or Salafi Wahhabism in the present. I mean, just one very dramatic example of the role of intellectual labor uh, has to do with what happened after 1958 in Iraq and Iran. Because these are two uh, industrializing, uh, relatively secular states, and, and yet in the, in the Shia seminaries, there, there's a movement that begins with the idea that we're going to try and prognosticate what an Islamic state would look like in Shia popular clothes. And, and this is done not just by the young, well, he's not so young by this time, Khomeini, out of the seminary of Qom, who's the future leader of Iran after 79, but also other clerics in Najaf and Kabbalah, and they set out, and what's uh, extraordinary, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm concertinaing the story, of course, is that they, uh, the sorts of blueprints for what a Shia Islamic state will look like that they come up with, starting after 1958, but by the early 1960s, with a council of guardians, uh, a, 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 an oversight, a, 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 an elected parliament, it's extraordinary how this sort of blueprint is part of what then actually comes to pass, even though it looked completely absurd in the late 50s, early 60s, that in, especially in Iran, that something like that, you know, nationalist, secular uh, Iran uh, would, would actually uh, uh, something like an Islamic revolution of that kind would transpire. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's it's one example of, of the, the role of uh, intellectual labor that in prognosticating, in motivating, and in serving as a basis for coordinated and predictable action. And another of the themes that the book uh, uh, deals with at some length is, is this business of piracy, the translocal appropriation of ideas. I, I mean, the translocal appropriation of ideas is often thought about in terms of you need some kind of sociological surrogate parent, whether it's to be print capitalism or the colonial state, or something that would explain why people take on an idea at a certain time. But I want to argue that at these moments of transgressive mobilization where you have greatly heightened uncertainty, people can suddenly adopt a model for collective action that, that doesn't necessarily have some uh, prior uh, sort of long sociological gestation, which then has sort of downstream effects. And I mean, the most recent example is this idea of the occupation of public squares, the continuous occupation of public squares until uh, demands are met. But there are, so, there are examples going back all the way through to the 19th century, 18th century, because these things aren't governed by the dynamics of the communications infrastructure, 
according to this book at least. I mean, one example is the notion of the people's guerrilla war that comes out of Cuba and Vietnam after 1959 and in the late 60s, early 70s. It gets taken on uh, by the Palestinians, for example, and it gets uh, interpreted, selected, reorganized, used in a very specific way. But that idea is very inspiring. And again, it's this translocal idea. It means that Palestinians in the early 70s, they're not, uh, you know, they're not, they're not very interested in socioeconomic conditions at the camps. You know, the foreign researchers, they show up, they want to know, and they say, no, we're looking at Vietnam, we're looking at Cuba. And, uh, and these are models for contentious collective action which can inform uh, and prognosticate. And just one more of these themes... Uh, which is normative commitment, because I, I actually have found that it's very difficult to even define uh, 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 transgressive mobilisation without thinking of some form of normative commitment. Uh, because you know, if a movement really is about opportunism or power-seeking, well, maybe it's not a movement anymore. I mean, it's always the most damning criticism that you know, opponents make of a given movement. And so, but you know, this issue is. Normative commitment can uh, operate uh, in all sorts of important ways. I, I see it as a kind of transcendent morale that movements have. It motivates people against risk and adversity. It enables them to maintain a principled line in the face of the seductions of power. And just let me give you one example from the, uh, the millenarian movement of the Mahdi of Sudan in the 1880s. When so this is the son of a boat builder from the Upper Nile, whose main military forces, begin with, they don't use weapons at all, but their main military forces are the cattle herding tribe. And they're faced with the world's largest empire, uh, Britain. And, this, and a figure comes, no less august than General Gordon, representing the British. He sends the Mahdi a letter of Mar in March 1884. It's trying to co-opt him. It says, uh, he, it appoints him the Sultan of Kordofan. It urges him to release the European prisoners, and it gives him a red robe of honour and a tarbouche. And the, here's the Mahdi's reply to this attempt at imperial cooptation, which you see scores of examples uh, in the region. And you see, of course, people accepting these offers because they're quite tempting. Uh, here's what the Mahdi says. And, you know, he, he, it's a very radical, heterodox, millenarian uh, movement that he's at the head of. He says, know that I am the expected Mahdi. Mahdi means uh, expected deliverer who will usher in a reign of justice. Uh, uh, in, in in a time of corruption and tyranny and crisis. He says, Know that I am the expected Mahdi, the successor of the Apostle of God. Thus I have no need of the Sultanate, nor of the kingdom of Kordofan, or elsewhere, nor of the wealth of this world and its vanity. I am but the slave of God, guiding unto God and to what is with him. As for the gift which you have sent us, may God reward you well for your goodwill and guide you to the right. It is returned to you herewith. So here's the sort of you know majestic dismissal of this uh, by you know the son of the boat builder from the upper Nile. But anyway, this but uh, you know, how do we understand this? Well, in part through the sorts of normative commitments that can that certain kinds of forms of transgressive mobilisation can exact. 
And, 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 and finally, in case you think, well, intellectual labor, translocal appropriation, normative commitment, these are all very uninstitutionalized sorts of things. They are. Um, but I do make a big play in the book of organization, strategy, and tactics. And I, and, and I go into this in some detail. Just one tiny example, uh, just because it's interesting, because the Syrian National Coalition after 2011, if you remember, they went to Washington and they said, ah, oh, uh, you know, perhaps you should bomb Syria. I mean, in the book, you see uh, you know, the waft, the, Egypt, the, the Egyptian nationalist delegation, the movement that had almost all of Egypt at its feet in 1919, a mass movement, they went to Europe and tried to negotiate. They, tried, they, they went to, and tried to get Europe to, to offer through negotiation a, a concession to Egypt, which was struggling under semi-independent rule and colonial rule, and they achieved almost nothing uh, in Europe uh, amid the, you know, the machinations of, of, of the great powers. But, I mean, so these, I mean, these strategies matter. Do you choose a diplomatic strategy or do you choose some other sort of strategy? And, of course, when it comes to the Syrian National Council, there's people like Yasmin Geni who've been doing interesting work on this. But the book throughout pays attention to organization, strategies, and tactics and how they operate. Uh, so, so to conclude, um, the book makes a pitch then for the importance of transgressive mobilization in the history of the region and its changing political dispensations. It argues that we need to write this history with the protest left in. It can't be dismissed as backwardness and recalcitrance, as it is in neo-orientalism and often in security studies, but not always. It can't be ignored as in top-down and power institutional accounts that focus only on elites. And it, but, but we should also challenge the uh, oftentimes post-colonial indifference to prote the protests and passions of the many. The book argues it's also unsatisfactory to try to explain this history through the, uh, the kind of uh, beloved uh, trajectory of capitalist modernity that historical sociologists have used so much. It's too materialist, it's too teleological, and it doesn't do justice to agency, culture, and politics itself. So the idea is to recover and to promote a more engaged and political form of history writing from below in a context where cultural and discursive histories have in fact had the initiative. So it's not a history of the left, it's not a history of peasants and workers or an old-style social history, but a history of popular politics, those moments when ordinary people try to intervene in political processes from which they're usually excluded. This isn't populism. But instead, it's about the persistent attempt by ordinary people who are excluded from the political realm to refuse such a situation of exclusion and to attempt to play a role uh, in the policies, rules, and forms of enforcement that dominate their lives. So it's supposed to be a new kind of uh, political history from below that breaks with the kinds of socioeconomic determinism that we often see in histories from below. And, uh, of course, in the contemporary world where political breakdown is quite widespread, and protests abound, the theme of popular politics is a vital and enduring one, and it is set to be so for many years to come. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for this uh, intense, thought-provoking uh, presentation. Um, and uh, I wish we had more time for questions and answers, but we have 
35 minutes or 37 minutes for a questions and answer. And please try to make your questions very precise and questions rather than comments. Uh, and try to speak loudly. Oh, yeah, the mic is here. So please wait for the mic. I think we'll start the first round of questions and answer with three questions. Okay. Or three questions, and then maybe we increase to four according to how things going on. Um, okay, the, we start with the uh, young lady with the uh, uh, brown top. Another question? Two? Hello. Okay. So only one question. Oh, this works. Does this work? Okay. And you're the second. Okay. Thank you very much for your uh, presentation. Really very interesting. Uh, could I ask uh, if you could talk a little bit more about the parts of the book that I don't know if this works. Um, about the parts of the book that talk about um, women's movements, and also uh, do you ever take the angle of looking at uh, student? movements or student participation in uh, protest movements. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Here. Oh. Man with the tie. Yes. Because the event is recorded, so it's Okay, my question is, I mean, what factors do you see behind you know, there's popular movements moving from confronting the elite to maybe more sort of negotiating you know, to find a new uh, new political consensus. Mm. Okay, let's have the third question. Um, uh, in taking such a broad and diverse base of information, um, do you fear that you may have potentially systematized a lot of these transgressive movements, and especially in you know current terms, with the questions of identity being really central? Would the do you think you embodied the endogenous mechanisms of identity creation and how those are incorporated in these political movements? Yes, good question. That, just the last one. Um, identity creation. Uh, have I done justice to those sorts of dynamics in, in social movements? Is that right? Okay. Yes, so women's movements. Uh, no, I mean, they, these are important questions, aren't they? I, the, we, I'm... I mean, the, there's some. There are just a number of case studies of, of women's movements in the book, uh, which I take to be uh, involve uh, movements that specifically contest forms of uh, masculine uh, domination. So, of course, one would, you know has to distinguish, distinguish between that and other movements, you know, in which women are involved, and women are involved in almost every movement. So, uh, so. Um, and so there are those. There are some of those sorts of studies. Um, I, I don't think one would read the book for that. Uh, but I, but I, I think that in all the mobilising projects that I treat, there these issues of gender are always very present. I mean, if there's always a sexual politics. I mean, if, uh, for example, in the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in the interwar years in Egypt, there's a strong sexual politics around the idea that old forms of 
masculine domination or codes are being are being violated, and this causes uh, is an important it's an important feature in the writings uh, of of some of the sort of intellectual sympathisers of the Muslim Brotherhood and so on and so forth. So gender is always at stake in this book. Uh, women's movements. I, I made some studies of some of them. Sometimes uh, I left some of them out, like in, in for example in Bahrain and Morocco in the contemporary period, just because I thought Charles Tripp in his book The Power and the People had done. I mean, you know, he'd done something very similar to what I, you know. So I, 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 I didn't uh, put put it in in that way. But the main. Uh yeah, it's the main uh, idea would be... I mean, I hold on to some notion of, of masculine domination in terms of how it generates forms of heteronomy, whether in the household or whether in the state or in the economic activity. Uh, so I don't relativise that completely. And then, uh, you know, there are movements... But then one finds uh, women involved in, in almost all the movements that appear in, in this book. As for student movements, well, they come in and they come out. I mean, one of the arguments I make, one of the things perhaps that struck me uh, uh, following having you know, read so much secondary literature is that, uh, I mean, just one of the things that happens to, to, among students and the educated in the 1950s and 60s uh, is that they take up the banners of armed struggle. And students, apart from a few tiny, you know, exceptions, uh, especially those studying in in secular academies and so on, they they're not thinking in those terms before the the Second World War. Generally speaking, we think of people like um, uh, for the later period after '48, the beginning of the movement of Arab nationalists and George Habash and others. He was an educated, uh, you know, he was a doctor. Whereas if you're looking at the interwar period, you see it's it's uh, tribal fact. You know, Omar el Mukhtar or, or, or others, or those with jihad traditions, and who, especially coming from the countryside. But students, but it's partly, and it's partly has to do with the translocal appropriation of this idea. Partly, the, the idea of the guerrilla war or the people's guerrilla war means that suddenly students, for the first time, will actually, you know, take up this idea of armed struggle. So, you know, it fits with you know, obviously the themes of the book, the importance of intellectual labour, and so on. So you have different sorts of constituencies get involved. I mean, students appear quite dramatically in Egypt. I mean, there is a, a major student mobilization in 1935, and then, but then again in 1946, and they, you know, they play a role. I wouldn't say that they uh, have a kind of a leading position, uh, especially this discrete idea of the student movement. I mean, student mo- I mean, there are movements that are formed on campus. Uh, 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 and then, uh, like the movement of Arab nationalists, for example, in the AUB in 1949 to 51. But it's um, they often then, when they appear in the book, they get well beyond uh, uh, campus. I haven't. It doesn't do a particular study of actual student movements on on campuses. Often, when they get out of that sector, I mean, that's often the case with the movements treated in the book. They're desectorized in sort of Michel Dobry's uh, terms. But yes, I hope you'll find. You know, there are. There are students and student movements in the book, but I didn't make a big play of that separate category. But that, you know, that could be super interesting. But it, it so happens that it doesn't come in the book. Between 
confrontation and negotiation. I mean, that, it's just a huge uh, part of the interpretive framework is, as I have, the distinction between transgressive mobilization and contained contention. So, which and, and transgressive mobilization is the one that I've been speaking about, which breaks the rules and brings you measure. And the more contained form of mobilization, I mean, it can look a bit more like negotiation. It can, you know, for example, uh, reading uh, Malik Abisab's work on tobacco strikes in Lebanon. I haven't read this PhD yet, but I'm about to. Uh, perhaps I shouldn't say that because I think I'm in the examiner or something. But it's uh, it's also about the same subject. But um, there, you know, there's an established political actor called a union. There's a strike. There's a set of negotiations. The strike uh, will alter the negotiations. It's more of a contained pattern. The the uh, the, pre- the it doesn't create a new collective solidarity in any innovative way. It, it works with an established political actor. It doesn't. Uh, it, it's uh, these people are recognised within the political field. The strike isn't banned in this case. It's legal. Of course, if the strike is banned, as it was very heavily in, say, the Ottoman Empire until the early 20th century, until this brief moment in 1908, then you have uh, uh, then you have a different set of dynamics. Then it's more transgressive if you go on strike. But uh, but yes, I, I mean, I, I make a big play of the difference between transgressive and contained. And I think your question was, how is it that there's a shift to more contained forms of contention? And, and just to clarify, there's a distinction between the contained contention and then the more transacted, official, scheduled politics of politicians doing electoral campaigns and so on and so forth, who are <coughs> those who make a career out of politics. That's, that, that's not contained contention in the same way, because contained contention can involve quite a significant input from those usually excluded from political society. But it's this kind of rough... Um, uh, categorization but um, but the movement from transgressive to contained uh, happens here through vectors of incorporation I mean I spoke about disincorporation as to how consent gets broken up but if you include people if you can become legitimate in their sight if you can co-opt them by providing them with position or resources if you um, uh, uh, can tolerate a, sp- a new sphere of autonomy within which they will operate, and if you can be effective in delivering their demands. Those are the sort of five main ideas about how incorporation happens. And so that's how you move from, a, from, from, from transgressive mobilization to a more contained pattern, where you still have protest, but it's according to the perhaps newly established or altered rules of the political system. Uh, as for yeah the systematization well I was very worried about systematization in this book which might mean you know of of sort of imposing a vocabulary on this very diverse and complex history and so um, I I actually you know maybe this book could be vulnerable to the opposite charge which is well you know where where, you know your system is uh, you know I try to let the case studies uh, speak as it were in historical terms it's quite detailed historically. It's not that schematic. And so, although each case study is written in the same way, I hope that you will see that there's a a living and a history that pays attention to the particular and the specific. On the question, though, of identity, uh, it's... um, um, it plays uh, a, a very important role in, in see, what I call uh, social... I mean, I really rely on the analytics of social movements. I rely on the idea of a mobilising project. And mobilising projects have identities, meaning that they are able to associate themselves in some way with a who. 
a who or a whom. And, uh, and, that, and that forms a sort of a very important part of, 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 of the book in terms of how I analyze what is going on in a mobilizing project. The, the, the who, whom, is, it plays a crucial role. But, but what I add, what I also think, however, in terms of, I, I, I get frustrated by the kinds of, um, like an Alberto Malucci or others in social movement theory who only insist on identity. And especially because I think the road then becomes open to identitarianism. And so I, I also have this uh, thing about the, the sorts of principles that orient and guide uh, action, which isn't the same as identity. I mean, uh, so, uh, and, 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 I, and, and also I, I tend to, I think that goals can be radically different even by people that hold the same identity. They can have different goals. So there are principles at work, there are goals, and then there are modes of organization, strategies, and tactics. So these are all the different components of the mobilizing project, which I, so I, uh, identity is there and it's important, but it's own, it's, I, the, 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 it's not, the book isn't organized around that in terms of um, how mobilizing projects work work because I think that that leads into various uh, sorts of sorts of traps okay uh, the second round of the questions okay, sir. hi okay <laughs> one okay um, so I'm interested in your link between uh, 1919 and the disillusionment with that period and then what you talk about in period two. Um, I'm curious how nationalism specifically was able to gain hegemony mm. and why it occurred in the time that it did and not before or after. Yeah. Thanks. Question. What were some of the research challenges that you encountered when writing this book? And um, were some studies more difficult to find histories of than others? Um, and for the issues with sources, I'd just be interested in hearing about the process. Uh, I have a third question. Um, as I am Palestinian coming from a, a kind of process background that I was involved with, the uh, one of the protest uh, movement that you included in your book. So how your book answers the common saying, and not only in Palestine and other countries, even in Tunisia, uh, people, the masses say, we don't learn from our history of mobilization. It's, it's, it's common amongst youth, young, middle-aged, those who are involved or not involved? Okay. Mm. Okay. Mm. Thank you. So, sh okay. Uh, so, the, the question about why nationalism. So, uh, yes, I'm, I, I, I am a little bit occupied with that question in the book, especially because, I mean, I briefly mentioned, I mean, there are some powerful theories about how nationalism uh, you know comes to be so important and uh, um, I mean the Gellner's sort of industrial society I mean I don't know how many I don't know whether it's taken that seriously in the context of Middle East and North Africa because it really doesn't make, make you can't you, I don't see how you can develop 
develop uh, a theory of nationalism based on industrial society in the Middle East and North Africa, because you, know, you would have to spend a long time justifying you know, against all the evidence that they became industrial societies. So, but then, you know, more interesting versions. I mean, the Benedict Anderson theory, the, the, the imagined communities on the basis of print capitalism, and then the colonial state and the census, the map and the museum. Uh, it's, um, uh, you know, who, well, uh, you see, my, my point was that, it, 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 that you have these kind of sociological surrogate parents. Well, if you look at the interwar period, a lot of the movements, I mean, the movement... Um, uh, I mean, the movement in the Rift Mountains or, or the movements in Iraq. I mean, of course, there are always debates about how nationalist they were, but they don't, they don't necessarily emerge from the sorts of uh, 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 sociological milieu that you might expect if you're looking for uh, print capitalism. Uh, and so you know, it seems to me there's something a bit more fertile about the idea about how it, and so and also how do you account exactly for the timing because in the Middle East and North Africa you, you know you have people invoking the idea I mean one of the first invocations of the idea that I saw in, associated with transgressive mobilization comes in 1840 on Mount Lebanon and so uh, and so you have it's a sort of a tax revolt but there's another dimension that there are Christians there are commoners and there are Ottoman governors and local feudalists extracting taxes and there's an uprising which is a common tradition, the Amea the, 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 the uprising of the commoners but they invoke uh, Greece they say, oh, look what happened in the 1820s. They uh, rose up against the Turks, as they called them, and uh, in the name of the Bilad, Maslahat al-Bilad, the interest of the country. And, um, and then they say, Watan. They say, Watan. I think they say Maslahat al-Bilad in, in 1820, and then they change it to Watan in 1840, which is the French sort of tried the word for patrie, but it, I mean, it has a, a complex genealogy, but it does mean. And so. Uh, so immediately it got my, you know, these antennae wa waving about, well, they, you know, they're looking at another relatively coeval example. They have nothing sociologically in common with the uprising in the Maria, as the Ottomans called it, or Greece, as it came to be known after independence. There, of course, uh, there are Christians involved, and there are, you know, Christian Muslim uh, features and so on. But, you know, but then when you read Osama Mokhtazi, you discover that some of the emigre priests who came to Mount Lebanon after the French Revolution, they all frothing and foaming at the mouth in opposition to ideas of patriotism and citizenship because they're the ones who were expelled from France by the French Revolution. And so they, it doesn't mean that, you know, because you're a Christian on Mount Lebanon, you're somehow more, you, can, you, you know, going to take, bring, you know, that would be too, it's too deterministic. So, but then, this happens then, but then why doesn't it happen in other parts of the region? And then why, why after the First World War? And so... The answer in the book has to do with how it can bring together very diverse constituencies that, uh, that have a great variety of different uh, forms of ideational substance behind what they do, which range from jihad, you have it in Iraq, you have that in what becomes Libya, you have it in Ezzedin al-Qassam in 1935, or between the late, early 1920s and 1935, and, other, and, and through to more kind of secular versions of nationalism and community. So uh, it's, but it's also this moment when the more dynastic state has been shattered and there are, there is, the, the Arab provinces have now been very aggressively partitioned. Uh, the, these Arab provinces, what becomes 
you know, Palestine and, and Israel and, and Syria and Lebanon. So they've been, um, they haven't known colonial rule. They've been under Ottoman rule. They're very aggressively partitioned after after the First World War as, you know, the spoils of war. And there's a settler colonial project, Zionism, to boot. And they, and so, you know, what are the new models of community that can operate in this new political field and, and that can hegemonize wide constituencies? So that's the sort of answer that um, that I that, that that comes out. So it's this, you know, it's not as it were, because if you read, for example, James Gelvin, you know, very accomplished book, he has this thing about the popular committees that were more nationalist in 1919, 1920. They were the result of a kind of socio-economic development that went back. Likewise, Michael Provence, in his great book on the the revolt, the Syrian revolt, 1925 to seven, the the reason why the Arab, the, the revolt in Syria of 1925 begins with the Druze, the Jebel Druze, the, 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 the rural area, is, is actually because they're more advanced than we think, because they're stitched into socio-economic networks that are in the suburbs of Damascus. But actually, uh, you know, I, 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 I think, well, actually there are appropriations of ideas that can actually, because the, the Jebel Druze had long fought against what they called the oppressors of our ancestors. And they, I mean, there was an old Arab nationalist tradition of historiography that said, oh, Turkish oppression, Arab nationalism, but and, and my generation sort of dismissed that. But actually, there's something in it, uh, according to this book anyway. There's something in this idea of this struggle against central authority and the Ottomans, which then can be hegemonized by the idea of nationalism afterwards. And so uh, I sort of, you know, that's why I look at these living traditions from the 19th century and say, yeah, they're actually important in the interwar period. So that's something about nationalism. On the research challenges... Um, well, I think just the, the, the main challenge is the volume and the excessive uh, range, uh, the, the, the number of the diversity of the sources. But it's funny because you, you, if you're looking for, you can spend uh, forever trawling through things and spending too much time on things that are not completely relevant. And then you find something that is, and then it's exciting. But then, uh, so it's that, that. And then the challenge of writing, actually. I wrote this, this was the third third attempt to write it and the first two times the structure was all wrong and it was too thematic and, and, and then I changed it to be more case study and, and, and chronological uh, and then I, I believe I found a, a, a structure that worked and um, but there are ways of but one of the, the things I mean I looked at treatises, autobiographies biographies, uh, memoirs and they're voluminous in, in Arabic and in the Arabic speaking world it's not like working with the state archives where you, you have to wait a year to get permission where, it's, uh, where only certain things are recorded anyway you never get to the subjective dimensions if, I mean of course there's lots of pitfalls with those kinds of works but uh, they're, they're voluminous. People write their memoirs. I mean, Fawzi al-Kawukji, uh, the peripatetic Arab nationalist uh, from, from, you know, from the, all the way through the interwar period. He fights in almost every armed struggle, well, a number of armed struggles, and, he, you know, he writes his memoirs, and so do lots of others. I mean, there are issues with using those, but they also can give you a glimpse of subjective dimensions that you don't find in state archives. So that was something that... Uh, it was nice to find, because, you know, we always have this idea that, oh, the Arabs' archives, they're closed, so we can't know anything. 
but actually, I mean, uh, you know, there are other ways to get into these histories which aren't filtered anyway through the archive of the state. So that, that, that was one of the more positive sides of what is in fact a challenge, which is the archives. Uh, and then um, in terms of... Uh, uh, your question, we don't learn from our history of mobilization. Well, that's, that's a tricky one, isn't it? It's a very tricky question. I mean, it's a good question. Because in a way, because political contexts fundamentally change. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking of the, the I mean, very interesting, the Ab Abid uh, Takriti's book on monsoon revolution, on the armed struggle in Dofar, in Oman, from 1965 to 1975. And then the sort of silence in that book, which is how people remember it, how the protagonists remember it. Because for them, it's a very bitter uh, event, and they don't necessarily want to talk about it, and maybe some of them are now co-opted into rentier state structures in the Gulf, so that part of their history they don't want to talk about anyway. But there are reasons why people forget, uh, and then there are reasons why even remembering might not serve you. I mean, Abid's project in that book, Monsoon Revolution, wonderful book, is to sort of revive this sense of, you know, there is revolutionary activism in the Arab world, look at it here, uh, we need to think about it, but uh, on the other hand, that may, in, in this book, I argue that there are elective affinities between vanguardist struggles of that kind and authoritarian rule. So there are reasons also... I mean, of course, you can learn lessons for that. You can, you can say, well, it's not relevant now to this generation, but perhaps it's still worth... I mean, also you're talking to a historian, so I want to say there's lots to read and learn, uh, uh, and that's also true. But, I mean, what about, you know, Mazin Kumsia, his book uh, on resistance in Palestine? It seems to be a constant problem process, and he's an activist, of, of learning lessons, of thinking uh, what, the, what can nonviolent protest achieve. I mean, it uses that history. And so I think, and, and I think activists also, they learn by experience, don't they? They don't just learn by, by reading the history books of academics. They learn by trial and error. They discover what works, what doesn't work. And it might not, I mean, what lessons? I mean, I have a PhD student, Fouad Masalam, he's just about to defend his viva on secular and independent activists in Lebanon in, uh, tw since 2005. What is it that the old left, as it were, can tell them? Uh, it's complicated, isn't it? Mm. And um, so, uh, because of the very different histories they possibly... It's like a, an anecdote from Cairo from 2011, an, an old, now demobilised figure on the left, uh, speaking of his son, he's very proud of his son, who was an activist in 2011, but for him, uh, he's not... You know, he, he can sort of go to the streets and be keen, but it's not, he's not going to take the initiative anymore, because he feels that yeah, his generation, they worked hard, they tried, and then there was the, the, the repression at Helwan uh, Steel Plant in 1989, and that was a sort of high watermark and now uh, you know that generation passes into a sort of complex abeyance demobilization Marie de Bock's written on that but I so but I mean that's a, a very interesting question that I don't have a, a simple answer to but you see you see practical learning over time you see forgetting that's useful and and then you see uh, uh, of course remembering but of course I, I believe there's a long history in this book that's very very rich on all the different kinds of activism. But what about this that's, uh, that I think is a lesson for the Muslim Brotherhood that comes out of this history that is that arguably, and this is what this book says, they never had a strategy for moving from mass organisation in civil society, clinics, 
libraries, kindergartens. What was the strategy for taking state power? What was the, the how do you get, because it's been, you know, revolutionary leftists have a strategy. They do an insurrection or they have an armed struggle. But actually the Muslim Brotherhood always, in Egypt, it was ambiguous about would there be an armed struggle or not. And so the movement was partly divided. There was one group that said they will and they were secret, but they weren't declared. And then, and, and then people were suspicious. And, and, then, and then there's a reformist trend in the 70s. And then, but they also don't have a tradition of, the insurrection and the demonstrations and the strikes in the same way that the left sort of embrace, I mean, for better or for worse. And so that, that's a sort of a gap. In strategic terms, this book argues that's a gap in their strategy. And you can see it played out in their use of parliament in the 2000s. What are they actually doing in Mubarak's parliament uh, because, because of the way it's so corrupted? And then the, the rush to power uh, after 2011, uh, you know. But so uh, anyway, that's that's just one. You know, this, these strategies are very important. If you look at the histories of how movements uh, engage, you you can you can learn things. Whether that helps because it's just an intellectual proposition uh, is probably uh, you know is a, is an open question. Okay. Uh, more questions. Uh, um, yeah, thank you very much for a fascinating presentation. Um, you were talking about uh, the elements uh, which is normally excluded from the uh, political decision making, and I was wondering if you're tackling in your book the elite participation and contention at all, and or yeah, elite contention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Mona, yeah. Um, thank you for a riveting talk. Uh, I, this book looks like a treat, so I'm, I'm going to look forward to reading it. Uh, my question is actually, um, I'm quite fascinated by your framework in which you discussed uh, contentious politics, but I wondered whether in, the, in this popular um, mobilization, whether you tackle issues to do with the breakdown of the popular mobilization. Is this something to do with, the, with the, what, what are the weaknesses that you sort of identify and whether they're commonalities uh, in the same way that there are commonalities to the mobilization uh, process itself. Me? Yes. Thank you very much, John. This is a splendid sounding book with such a wide range. Uh, and there's so many questions that, that arise. And one I just want to pose on in particular, uh, which is a kind of methodological question, which is uh, you, you seem to um, reject the explanation in terms of socioeconomic conditions, or mm -hmm. to qualify them. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't that sort of rule out um, uh, a sociology? If they are, you know, are these all, I'm, I'm a little puzzled. I mean, there's this kind of spontaneism there. And the other element of it, of course, is that some of these movements that you mentioned are in response not so much, not only to power, but also to um, the political field of the time. I was intrigued particularly with the example of the uh, Shia clerics in Najaf. Um, 
uh, I mean, why 1958? Because that's the time when the Iraqi Communist Party was at the height of its power, mm -hmm. and all their children were becoming communists. Yeah. And the, gra the students graduating from the seminaries were becoming communists. Yes. So they had to find uh, a kind of alternative uh, narrative to the communists, which is Islamic. And of course, so much of what they did was Marxist-inspired, what yeah. they actually wrote about. Yeah. Uh, so I think, um, you know, I'm a little puzzled on the question of conditions. You know, why are you rejecting socioeconomic explanations and, and political ones in that? Um. Can, shall we take can a fourth question? Yeah. Yeah. If it's linked to... Yeah. Because, I mean, I totally agree. I I, um, I was just wondering, like, um, how you, um, you know, um, um, th you know, th analyze the strategies of those activists. I mean, if... if um, <coughs> You know, especially the revolutionary left has a lot to say about, for instance, like infrastructure, technological, like uh, progress in relation to like global capitalism, because uh, they were quite aware of uh, of the fact that, like, um, you know, those things um, uh, were part of the strategy of you know of, uh, exploitation of those areas. So, um, so I was wondering, like, how can we really uh, exclude that side of like um, history making? like materialist um, uh, revolutionary um, um, maybe I just misunderstood but yeah yeah but we only have five minutes to leave so yes we may have a chance to have another two questions at least okay great so I should be quick yeah so elite participation uh, the short answer is no <laughs> uh, I, I I've sort of relentlessly focused you know obviously the long answer is much longer but the focus is on those sort of routinely excluded from formal and transacted politics and positions of routine influence within the polity so that but and those people are very often people who are subaltern on a variety of other axes whether they could they might lack citizenship, they might have low income, they might have... But so, that the popular in the word popular politics is those excluded sectors, and it's the moments when they intervene. Of course, elites are everywhere, uh, and uh, uh, but um, but the, the, it's the vectors that I'm interested in that I tease out, and uh, are, are, are not uh, uh, constructed by... Uh, the, I mean, the main role... Uh, for authorities is w in this book has to do with their when they uh, fail to maintain forms of political consent so they're derelict in some way or other and and so that's their main sort of uh, sort of function in this book so uh, as for the um, the breakdown of popular mobilization ah yes the, do I analyze mechanisms of demobilization the breakdown of popular mobilization and so on and so forth it, it the, the reality is it has much less play in this book it's uh, it's more obsessed with trying to recover how these moments get constructed 
It really is. I mean, of course, just to take the example of the uprising in Palestine, 36 to 9, the focus is on, it's what Charles Anderson calls the generative alignment of all these different constituencies that come together to make it happen. It's not, a, but of course there's the division, the cooptation, the informants, the relentless uh, uh, counter uh, terrorism, quote unquote, the counterinsurgency undertaken by the British, and I, you know, I, 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 I come to some uh, conclusions about how it happens, but I don't, I don't, uh, and I, I usually cite other people, and I, I cite things I found convincing, but I don't make a big exploration of it or a play on it. But I do have some arguments. I mean, I do, I do play up the role, or I, I see as important the role of colonial violence. I mean, actual physical violence in putting down and repressing, I mean, whether it's in Iraq or 1920, the Rift Mountains, I mean, the Spanish, and uh, I mean, it's extraordinary what happened in Morocco in the 1920s. You have something like the number of armed troops of the Spanish and the French in the field in Morocco in the Rift Mountain in 1920 is more than the total population of the Rift Mountains. And that's how they overwhelmed the movement. Uh, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's not that you have technologically superior, astonishing, you know, small numbers of colonial troops who can easily defeat this sort of backward and inferior foe. No, it's quite the, it's absolutely not the case. What the colonial armies have is the ability to resupply and put troops in the field. And they use chemical weapons, of course, in, in uh, Morocco in the 1920s. But, but, but the... And the RAF in Iraq. Right. Yeah. And the best study of that is the, is the Sebastian Balfour book, isn't it? Deadly Embrace, mm -hmm. about... Uh, yes, it was the. Uh, they, they could. They should have kept searching for weapons of mass destruction after 2003, because they eventually would have found the Eng the British ones that Churchill had urged that the British would use in the 1920s. So, because of course it was the Europeans that introduced chemical weapons, uh, you know, along with Enlightenment and everything else to the region. I'm sorry, that's cynical, cynical <laughs> comment. But Tassiolar James begins his study of the, the Black Jacobins. But so no. It's not a specific focus, but it's present. And I, and I hope that if you read the book for that, you will see it, but you, you'll see references. Uh, so, the, yeah, well, the whole the question of the socio, you know, what happens to the socioeconomic contradictions, what happens to revolutionary left strategy, what happens to the, the uh, important dynamics of global capitalism in a study like this? Does it mean that I'm just interested in, you know, spontaneity and it doesn't get to uh, the forms of structural power and so on? Is it perhaps there's a risk of voluntarism or idealism or something like that? I mean, uh, uh, this this goes to the heart of what's going on in the book, uh, and so. And, 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 and it's the idea, I mean, so there's some fundamental sort of motivating rationales uh, for writing like this. And then there's, uh, you know, then there's more you know, specific critiques of uh, certain kinds of analysis in specific cases. I mean, first of all, uh, I, this is how I understand why those Shia clerics got involved in this new intellectual elaboration. It's, it's not, ex I mean, it's... Uh, uh, they, there were lots of things going on, but yeah, one of them, the, the power of communism, the, the idea of the, you know, the old society slipping away and the seminarians, what are we going to do? But of course, only some of them responded with uh, this intellectual creativity. And often, because, I mean, in this book, you'll find the Sunni ulama of Egypt in the 19th century responding in a different way, a much more introspective way. They didn't come up with a new idea about what an Islamic state would look like. I, 
I, it's a kind of you simply don't see it. I, I, I got a bit down on the Sunni ulama of 19th century Egypt, but uh, but uh, it's extraordinary how there's not much intellectual labour. Whereas actually, in the Shia traditions of Iraq and Iran, it's ongoing. There's a lot of vibrant intellectual labour which matters. So. Um, so yes, I accept that this is happening partly as a result of you know the, the, the importance of communism, secularism, fears over that, and then of course there are vested interests, land reform, which threatens their land holdings, you know, uh, and so so why? But but but. Um, I, 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 the, in terms of fundamental motivations and rationales, I just think the, uh, the, we, uh, we need a, 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 an analysis of the political field that can, prop, that can do justice to political dynamics, and that includes intellectual labor, includes normative commitment, it includes translocal uh, dynamics, strategies, organization, it includes all of these sorts of vectors that are not properly attended to in some of the analysis that, that, that work with a, a, a notion that there, there is a mode of production, there are shifts in the mode of production, and this ultimately gives rise to specific co constellations of politics and, and, and culture. So there's that, there's an attempt to say, no, we have to have histories uh, uh, that, that deal with, with the, that do justice to those political dynamics. So it's certainly not a, it's absolutely not a rejection of, of political explanations. I mean, how I, I see it is I, I take on economism, but I also tr try to take on culturalism. It's not, this isn't an identitarian project. It's about the, the politics. So structure enters into it through the structure of the political field and the, the way, uh, and the, the structure of formal, transacted and established politics and how it gets interrupted. Uh, and as for revolutionary left strategy and the borrowings Islamists, I mean, Islamists, it's true, they even borrowed the, the vocabulary, the mantle, you know, revolutionary vocabulary. Uh, I, I recently examined a PhD that, that, that um, you know, founders of Hezbollah acknowledged their debt to Lenin in terms of vanguardism and so on. And... Um, uh, sure, there's there th this those, but those borrowings are very important. They're not. Um, and, I mean, the revolutionary left has been strong on strategy. Just to throw out, uh, you know, make a, this generalisation. There, there, there is a, a very entrenched tradition which is very strong on organisation and strategy, uh, and that can be learned from. But what? But on the other hand, you have to be correct according to the objective conditions of, of, of socioeconomic production and specifically a mode of production and and if you're not correct then you're wrong and that that and, and uh, rather than I mean you see how this works its way through doctrinal disputes on the left and how that is a fracturing and a form of it, it, it does generate I do argue it generates demobilization and I mean it's um, just a, one example Naif Hawatma Palestinian very on, on the left accusing George Habak of being a Zionist and an imperialist because they disagree minutely on some element of doctrine and strategy. So you have this position taking on the revolutionary left because you have to be correct in terms of your... So, you know, there's this uh, which can create problems. Uh, so that's another feature which is probably okay. makes me a Thank victim of my so generation. Thank you so much. I think it's... <laughs>